Good morning. I'm going to move this, or I'm going to kick it over. I promise I will. I'm kind of klutzy that way. Oh, it's so great to be with y'all here this morning. I love that y'all do a winter brunch instead of trying to cram everything into the holiday time. Y'all are brilliant. I think that's really smart. That was a beautiful song, Laura. I love that. That's one of my favorite songs playing on the radio right now. Really enjoy it. Um, well, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Tammy Gray, and I'm a local girl. I grew up down the street in Louisville, Texas, if any of y'all know where that's at. Um, I grew up in a little church called Louisville Bible Church, and it's in the old part of Louisville, across from what used to be Delay Middle School, which I drove over the other day, and I was like, it's not a school anymore. Hmm. I think it's like an admin building or something. But I grew up in that church because my grandfather founded it and pastored it for many years. So I had the privilege of um, growing up at, at, for, at, with him as my pastor. He was about five feet tall, and he was my grandpa, and I uh, loved him so much. My husband thought that you would find it interesting to know that an interesting fact about me is I'm a fifth-generation Texan. My family came to Texas in 1842, which apparently is really unusual. He knows this because he's really into genealogy. He has many hobbies, one of which is genealogy right now. We're in the genealogy phase of hobby, hobby time right now. So he's keeping Ancestry.com um, in business. I have a picture of my family. Um, I have been married to my husband, Stephen. It will be 25 years in August, which I cannot believe. Thank you, thank you. Yes, it's an achievement, right? Um, it's amazing. We actually met in the marching band in high school. Louisville High School Fighting Farmers, yes. And we met in the marching band. So ladies, always be careful who your kids are dating. Might end up being their spouse. Um, I don't know, do we have the, the family picture? Um, so I have three daughters. Um, Mackenzie is 17, and Katie is 15, and Madison is 12. Yes, I have three daughters. Um, and so I always tell people there's always just a lot of conversation going on in our house. We do have a boy dog. I uh, gave my husband that. And I got to tell you something funny. Um, you're going to think we never talk. But last night, we're in the car. We're on our way to my daughter's uh, band event. And I reminded him I was doing this brunch. He's like, now what church is that? And I was like, First United Methodist Carrollton. He's like, you know I grew up in that church, right? I was like, what? And, and so we get talking from about 1973 to 1985. He was at this church, and my in-laws were too. Was anybody here then? He was really ornery. I'm sorry if he was causing you trouble. But he, um, he went through confirmation classes here. He thinks that he probably came to know the Lord here at this church. And so I just want to thank you for having a part. Stephen Gray, my in-laws are Roger and Connie Gray. If that rings a bell, please tell me. I could not believe it. I was like, do we ever talk? I told you I was doing this a long time ago. But I thought that was so cool. He goes, I was baptized here, everything. So anyway, I just thought that was crazy. Like I said, you're going to think we never talk to each other. We just don't talk details. Um, but I do currently work at Ventry in student ministry. I've been at Ventry. We've been at Ventry since 1993. But I've only worked there for about five years in student ministry. Um, I love to work with teenagers, which officially makes me weird. Um, but I got to say, it's coming in real handy right now. Um, enjoying working with teenagers. So um, when I was growing up, I was a tomboy. I mean, in every way. I was often mistaken for a boy. My mom didn't know what to do with curly hair, 
So she just cut it off real short. Remember Dorothy Hamill's cut was real popular back then? That doesn't work well with curly hair. So um, a lot of times I got mistaken for a boy. But I love to play tackle football. Tackle football. I would grab my two brothers and the two boys next door, and anytime we could, we would be outside playing tackle football. Now, the best present I ever received for Christmas, I was in elementary school. I don't remember exactly how old, but it was a full set of Dallas Cowboys pads, pants, shirt, helmet. I mean, I was on cloud nine. That was the best present I'd, I'd ever received. So I just knew that I would be an awesome boy mom, right? I knew I would grow up one day and I would have kids and they would be all boys and I would have a football team and it was just going to be amazing. Well, obviously that didn't happen. So six years into our marriage, we're thrilled to find out that I'm indeed pregnant and a sonogram confirms, nope, no boy, it's a girl. Well, my little tomboy heart was just shaken to the core. I thought, God, what are you thinking? But my husband's family was in disbelief because they had not had a girl born into their family for three generations. And so, I mean, shock. And Now, I've talked about my in-laws, now I'm going to tell a story on them. So my mother-in-law starts working on a receiving blanket that is blue and brown. And even though we kept having sonograms that confirmed that I was having a girl, she kept working on it and kept working on it and presented it to us on the birth of our first daughter. So fast forward two years, she presented us with a yellow receiving blanket on the birth of my second daughter. Fast forward three more years, and she finally presented us with a pink blanket (laughs) on the birth of my third daughter. I was like, finally! She finally got it. She finally believed us. But fast forward to today, and I cannot imagine my life without these three girls and all the joy that they have brought into our lives. God indeed did know what he was doing and uh, what I needed. Surprise, surprise. Um, And we're going to talk a bit this morning about perspective. And I'm so thankful that God changed my perspective on what it meant to be a mom, what I thought it was going to be, and how he turned it. He didn't just change it. He turned it upside down. Because I love being a girl mom. And I honestly at this point cannot imagine what I would be with a boy. In fact, when I was pregnant with a third one, I was like, Lord, please, 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 please let it be a girl. Because I just had no idea. I was like, what would I do with a boy? Just talking to Laura, she had a boy for her third. So fortunately, I dodged that bullet. Um, I don't know what I would do with a boy. But I just want to say it's an honor to be here with you all this morning. I've been praying for each and every one of you. And I don't have anything to say to you. I know you're thinking, uh, I just got ripped off. I don't know what you paid for this brunch, but um, I'm feeling ripped off right now. What I mean by that is I've been praying that God would say through me what he wants to say to you. That's my prayer. I don't have anything. I don't have any wisdom. I don't have anything. All I have is Jesus, and I have what he's laid on my heart to share with you this morning. So I've just been praying for each one of you. I just want you to know that I'm, I'm super happy to be here with you. So I'm not sure if you're back into your routine after the holidays and all that. I know it takes some people longer than others. There's a few people in the neighborhood that still have their Christmas lights out. It's taken us a while as a family to kind of get back into the groove of things. But honestly, I'm kind of like, I'm glad. I was glad to see them go. Um, It's funny to me how we can anticipate something so much, and then it comes, and then we're like, okay, it's time for you to leave. It's like the family member that stays just a little bit too long. 
And, um, you know, we're, we're kind of glad to see them go. But, of course, the vacuum that is left from all the Christmas ads and all that is quickly filled with New Year's resolution stuff, right? All the talk of diets and supplements and gym membership uh, promotions and 1,001 things to do with kale. I mean, I'm just like so tired of it, right? Just stop it. Stop, stop, stop it. Um, and then another thing that comes around this time of year is the talk of New Year's resolutions, right? New Year's resolutions. So here's been my history with New Year's resolutions. They don't work for me. Um, I may do something for like a month, maybe two months, if I'm really, really, really determined. Um, I'm on, let's see, I'm in Hosea, um, my read through the Bible through the year. I'm in the third year of the, of the read through the Bible in the year, and I've made it to Hosea. So, I mean... You know, just New Year's resolutions, they don't really tend to work for me. So, I have found something, um, however, that does result in lasting changes in how I think and what I do. In fact, I will never make New Year's resolutions again. I found something that works a lot better. And that is gaining a new perspective, a new way to look at a situation or maybe a person, or maybe even a passage of scripture. I, I like this quote, author Dan Brown, I think he wrote like the Da Vinci Code and some things like that. He has a really cool quote. He says, sometimes all it takes is a tiny shift of perspective to see something familiar in a totally new light. I think that's really true. But why does a change in perspective, um, why does it change what we do and how we think? Well, oftentimes, if we see something in a new light or from a different angle, it has a direct impact on our heart, right? And when our heart changes, then our actions and attitudes often change naturally as an overflow, kind of organically, of that new perspective. And those changes, they tend to stick around. They tend to last. Here's an example that I'd love to share with you. Um, in Matthew 20... Jesus tells a story about a vineyard owner, and he needed some workers to work in his field. So he went out and got a group of workers early in the morning when they started working. Well, about lunchtime, he realized, this is never going to get done. I need to get some more workers. So he goes out and he gets a second group of workers. Well, it's getting to the end of the day, and it's like, man, I've only got an hour left. This is not getting done. I need to go get a third group of workers. So they work all day, but that little last group works an hour. He lines them all up, and he starts to pay them, and he, he pays them the exact same amount. He goes down the row, and he pays them the exact same amount. Well, you can understand, this first group that was hired in the morning is none too happy about that. They're like, that's not fair. And I used to read that story and think, that is not fair, Jesus. What are you thinking, right? So one morning, my pastor was um, actually preaching on that story. And he said, you know, it's funny. When we read stories, we tend to identify with a character in the story. And he said, we all tend to identify with this first group of workers, right? And we feel their indignation, and we understand why they're angry. So what Jesus wants us to know is that, no, actually, we were in the last group, that we've been given amazing grace and unmerited favor. And it forever changed how I looked at that passage. And it created gratitude that welled up in my heart. I've never thought about that passage the same again. I've never thought about my salvation and the things that God's given to me the same again. I just realized, wow, there's 
I've never seen that right. So having a new perspective on that passage, seeing a different light, really, really changed how I thought about it. So instead of you giving you yet another list of resolutions to keep for 2017, instead, I would like to offer up four new perspectives for the new year. It's definitely not a to-do list. Please, please, please hear this. It's not. Instead, these are just ideas of how to maybe look at some different things um, in a new light differently. And my prayer is that as we do that, our hearts will be impacted and our attitudes and our actions will organically just change out of those new perspectives um, and those changes will be lasting. They'll stick around. Does that sound good? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So I want to start with a new perspective on emotional health. So we talk a lot about our physical health, right, especially at this time of year. But we don't talk a lot about our emotional health. And I don't know about you, but it does not take much for me to get frazzled, frustrated, and beat down. And when I'm at that place, I am not the mom, the wife, the friend, the employee that I want to be. I kind of compare it to a gas tank. I can get on empty really, really fast. And when I'm there, I don't have anything to give myself, and I definitely don't have anything to give to the people around me. So, with that in mind, um, what is a new perspective that we can get on emotional health? Maybe instead of waiting for the craziness to subside, which let's all be honest, does that ever happen? No, right? When one crisis resolves itself, another one pops up. When one kid, you've kind of figured them out, another one goes off the deep end. You know, like it's just never, 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 it never calms down, right? So instead of waiting for that to happen, which we know is never going to happen, maybe we can focus on making sure our emotional tank is full so that we can stay emotionally healthy no matter what is going on around us, right? So I think the secret to doing this lies in understanding how to fill our emotional tank. So let's look at how different people fill their tanks. So I was surprised to learn a few years ago that I am an introvert. And I know that a lot of you guys are going, no, you're not. You are not. You're standing up there in front of people, talking to people. But I realized I didn't understand what those terms meant, introvert and extrovert. They don't refer to personalities, but instead they refer to how we get our energy. So I learned that introverts get their energy from being alone, and extroverts get their energy from being with other people. Now, that doesn't mean that introverts don't like people or that extroverts can never be alone. That's not what it meant. That's not what it means. It's just how we get our energy. So I found this article that I thought was hilarious because I was like, how does she know me? Um, she was talking about how to know if you're an introvert, and it's 11 signs. And I'm just going to, I picked out a couple that I thought were really good, a few. So here's signs that you might be an introvert. I want you to listen and think for yourself, which one am I? So here's signs you might be an, uh, an introvert. Canceled plans bring the greatest sigh of relief. I know that sounds horrible, but I'm like, amen. Now, unless it was like something that I was really, really looking forward to, but so cool with that. Um, you get anxiety just thinking about small talk. I don't struggle with that one as much, but I know a lot of people that do. This is hilarious. You think the act of making new friends sounds more exhausting than running a marathon in heels. Yes, yes, and yes. And then this last one's my favorite. You're 100% certain that airplanes were created by and for extroverts. 
Yes, I'm going to invest in some of those Bose noise-canceling headphones. I think that would be good. Okay, so now let's look at the flip side. Here are signs that you might be an extrovert. You love to talk. Um, socializing helps you feel energized and inspired. You know, you love the small talk. You love to go to parties. Um, you like to solve problems by discussing them. Um, you are very open, and people find it easy to get to know you. You're the people that everybody likes to be around, okay? Um, so one's not better than the other. It's just important to know which one you are. So I'm just super curious, now that you've heard my very, very brief summary of this, if you think you're an introvert, can you just raise your hand based on our little list? Okay, a lot of introverts in the crowd. Shout out, shout out. Okay, so if you think you're an extrovert, raise your hand. Okay, all these people throw the best parties, go to their house. After the brunch is over, they'll be happy to have you. Okay, okay, awesome. So we're, okay, so, yeah, and some of us are kind of both, right? Like, I almost kind of measure in the middle, but definitely more towards the introvert side. So I saw some of you raising both hands because you related to a little bit of both. I, I feel you. I'm going to say wait, but I definitely am more on the introvert side. Okay, so now that we know how to fill our emotional tank, how do we make sure that we actually do it? Well, as an, as an introvert, um, I found that I need to have extended regular times of um, alone time, okay? Like, uh, quite a bit. Um, and so when my kids were little, I was just talking to Laura, her kids were about the age mine were when, when this is what we did. It was like five, three, and newborn. And I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And so on Saturday mornings, my husband would assume all, assume all responsibilities for the kids. And I'd get in my minivan, and I would drive two miles down the street to the Kroger parking lot. And I would sit in my car for hours, hours. Now, I might read, I might listen to music, I might study my Bible, but it was, I called it my office away from home. I sat in my minivan alone, and it was awesome. Now that my kids are a little bit older, it's um, definitely easier to find time to be alone. But if you're an introvert, it's important that you find time to be alone. Now, I know that's really hard if you're staying at home with little ones, or you have a full-time job that demands a lot of you, or you're one of those brave souls who homeschools. God bless you. But it's hard to find time to be alone, right? But it's important. Um, you might need to enlist the help of your spouse or family or friends. If you have little kids and you can find another introvert friend, you know, swap kids so that you can have time alone. Um, that's important. Now, if you're an extrovert, you need to take care of yourself too, right? You need to make sure that you're spending regular time with friends that you enjoy. Um, you might want to organize social activities in your community or at your church so that you have plenty of time to fellowship and gather and talk and be around other people. You might even want to find like a volunteer activity that you really enjoy so that you can work side by side with people that you, you know, have a shared passion and a common interest in. So that's important. And then whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, I think this is really important. I think we're as a society, we're not great at creating margin in our lives, right? We need to really invite the Lord into our lives to speak into what do we say yes to and what do we say no to. For years and years, I have struggled to say no. Um, but the last few years, the Lord has really worked on my heart. In fact, a few years ago, he led me to, about in August, list down every single thing that our family might be involved in, my kids, community, church, whatever we might be involved in, and I would go somewhere alone, of course, and, um, I, and I would pray over that list, and I would say, Lord, I just invite you 
to, to show me? What do you want me to say yes to? What do you want me to say no to? I tell my kids all the time, we're, t- we, we're trying to talk to them about this too. You'll never have to say no to, to bad things, right? But we need to learn to say no to the good so that we can say yes to the bad. And I think that's so important. And when we do that, we create margin in our life. We create space. Space to hear from the Lord, space to spend time with him, and space to take care of ourselves emotionally, in the, depending on the way that we're wired. Okay, let's move on to our, our next area. Let's look at a new perspective on diet and exercise. This is season to be beat over the head with this one, right? We kind of talked about this before, but I can't escape all the talk of detox soup, right? Um, essential oils. I do not get that, um, but a lot of my younger friends who are cool and hip do. Um, eating organic, of course, more kale. Kale, kale everywhere. People carrying around giant bags of carrots and jugs of water. Have you noticed that lately? I'm not sure what's going on. Um, there's a boy, a boy, oh, I can't believe I called him a boy. He's a man. He's like 22. He just graduated from college, and we just hired him on as our student worship pastor, and I love him, but he is cracking me up. He's on this thing called Whole30. I did not know what that was, and my daughter was like, Mom, all the young, cool, hip people are doing it. And I was like, well, that's why I don't know anything about it. Um, and so it's so funny because he, I've never seen anyone more miserable, and so I've decided that whoever came up, I have it. Whoever came up with Whole30, I think it was a little experiment to see if people would inflict torture voluntarily on themselves. Um, Because he is miserable. And I just keep delivering pizzas to his house and things. Um, So uh, we're having a good time with him. But it is is really funny because um, he's easy to laugh at. Um, But our culture um, barrages us with not only that kind of stuff, but also airbrushed images of perfection, right? When my girls were little, we would go to Walmart. I would turn every one of those Cosmos around. I would just go down there, and they were like, what are you doing, crazy lady? But it just made me so angry. You can't get away from all these airbrushed images of perfection. Nobody has abs like that woman on the cover of health or whatever. Nobody looks like that. And it's just crazy because even the people who their pictures on there, they're like, I don't actually look like that. You know, like Cindy Crawford said, I wish I looked like Cindy Crawford. Uh, you know, I read a quote from her because they change it and they airbrush it. And so then we feel this pressure to kill ourselves, to live up to this unattainable image, which nobody can actually achieve. And then we feel less than when we can't measure up to it. Well, something happened to me 26 years ago, almost to the day, that forever changed uh, my relationship to diet and exercise. And I can share it story with you. Um, I had just transferred down to Texas A&M as a sophomore. Any Aggies? Any? Yay. All right. All right. Um, and I was studying hard. And um, over the holidays, I got sick with, like, a virus or something. And it just kind of lingered and lingered and lingered. And so my mom had me come home and see if I had mono or something, and I didn't. And I eventually got over the virus and went back to school for the spring semester. So it was about, I was thinking about this morning, it was about exactly this time of year, about 26 years ago. And I got over the virus, but I started having really, really strange, odd symptoms. Um, I was extremely thirsty. I would probably drink about a a liter of water an hour. And um, I just felt insatiably thirsty. And so all I did was drink water and go to the bathroom. I tried to go to the library and study, and I felt like all I did was go back and forth to the bathroom. And then um, I, I started just being so hungry all the time. 
I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was at school with me. She goes, I remember going into the cafe and you getting a purple scoop of ice cream and just slamming it down. And I was like, did I really do that? It's all fuzzy to me. Um, and she's like, yeah. And I would eat all the time, all the time, all the time. And I was just hungry all the time. Well, I'd go to my weightlifting class, which was my PE credit. You know, you got to do some kind of thing. So I took weightlifting. And so every week we would go in there and we had to weigh. Well, so I'd hop on the scale and I'd be like, dang, I lost five more pounds. Well, the women in the class hated me. I mean, I was like, and I thought, what, freshman 15? This is awesome, right? And so I'm like, this is great. I can eat everything I want. So one day, I went to the blood mobile, you know, that would roll up on campus, and I was a regular blood donor, and I went in there, and they make you weigh, and she said, you know what, I'm sorry, you can't get blood today, because you don't weigh enough, and I remember that day really well, because it set off alarm bells in my head, like, I'm a grown woman, like, I should weigh enough to give blood, so I called my mom, and, and my mom, being my mom, was like, um, you know, I think you need to come home when you go to the doctor, so sure enough, I go to my just regular doctor, he takes blood. He comes back about five minutes later, and he's crying. And he said, you know, I'm really um, sorry to tell you, but you have juvenile diabetes. Now, Steel Magnolias had just come out in 19, uh, 1989, so this was not a good time to be getting this news. Um, and, and so my mom started crying. He's crying. I don't even know what juvenile type 1 diabetes is. I just knew they had to take shots, and that was terrifying to me. And so everything changed for me that day. Um, I went back to College Station, went to the hospital for a week. Um, I, I learned how to give myself shots, four shots a day. Everything changed about what I ate, how I exercised, everything. Everything changed. And it wasn't just what I ate, it was I had to count things and figure things and all that. And so my mom, my sweet mom, moved to College Station in her travel trailer. And I lived with her. And um, that was so meaningful to me that she did that, but it was a big change, and I learned um, how to change my life, and I learned about the new normal that was to be my life, and there were a lot of years of denial and anger and frustration. You know, I'm 20 years old. <laughs> like, I think my whole life is ahead of me, and my mom didn't tell me at the time, but of course she worried if I could ever have kids and what my life would look like and how long I would live and um, so there were all those things, and I would get so angry, and I can remember screaming at God and yelling and just saying, this just isn't fair, you know? And so um, he was so sweet with me and so gentle with me and so kind with me, and he eventually brought me to a couple of verses um, that really gave me a new perspective on this. I think I've got them up on a slide for you. The first one was 1 Corinthians 6.19, where it says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And then Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It dawned on me that this body I had was the only one that I was going to get and that it was going to have some challenges. But that if I took care of it, I could do these good works that God had planned for me to do. Taking care of my body all of a sudden for me became an issue of stewardship. You know, I had always understood stewardship as it related to money and even as it related to time. But I had never thought about taking care of myself as an issue of stewardship. 
Um, I gained a new perspective on taking my medication, um, having a healthy diet, um, exercising regularly that removed the internal pressure to look a certain way, to be a certain size, to be a certain weight, because that wasn't my goal anymore. I started to actually think of my body like I thought about my car that I needed to take in for regular oil changes and for tire rotations. And I know that sounds really weird and strange and awkward, but getting that new perspective really revolutionized my relationship with diet and exercise and my medication and all the stuff I had to do. And it really impacted um, how I was able to talk to my girls about those things. Um, um, I've embraced things that are just sustainable over time, nothing extreme. I go to the gym regularly, but not every day. I just can't do that. Just kind of a regular thing, but it's not crazy or over the top. Um, I follow a 90-10 diet, or if we were honest, it's probably an 80-20 diet. We're like 89% of the time, I try to eat healthy stuff, you know, because being a diabetic, it helps me a lot to do, like, a lot of fruits and vegetables and lean meats and stuff like that. But 10 to 20% of the time, I eat cheesecake and chocolate cake, and you'll see me eat all kinds of, I was checking out the dessert table earlier. I definitely still eat all that stuff, um, but just in a ratio that works. Now, with exercise, you definitely have to find something that works for you. I've tried all kinds of things. Like, I used to go to classes, but I'd hurt myself. Um, I tried running. I hurt myself. Um, and, and it won't surprise you. I've learned that I just like to exercise by myself. You give a theme with me? Yeah, I like to be by myself. But before I figured all that out, I had this friend talk me into doing a duathlon. Now, I was probably 25 years old. Should have been in the best shape of my life, right? So I said, well, which of the three are we not doing? And she said, well, there's no swimming. And I was like, thank goodness, because when I swim laps, I think I'm going to drown. So I was like, okay, so just running and biking, I can do that. I had never done any kind of race, no 5K, no nothing. So this is a duathlon. So we kind of trained, not really. We're like, we're 25. I mean, we can do this, right? So we show up the day of the race. It's over in Fort Worth. It was called the Do to Do, D-U-D-O-D, Do to Do. We thought, that sounds fun. It's got to be like a fun thing, right? So we get out of the car, and we start noticing that everybody looks, like, kind of serious. You know, they have, like, real outfits on with sponsors on them. And the guy gets out of the car next to us and lets us know he just arrived from Spain to participate in this race. And we're like, what have we done? So anyway, we find out that it's actually a USA Triathlon qualifying event. And here we are in our t-shirt, Nike shorts, you know, whatever we wore back in the mid-90s. And so anyway, we're like, well, we're here. We paid the fee. Let's go ahead and do it, right? So needless to say, it was an ugly, ugly experience. Um, I finished in mm, the very last. I rolled in with the over 60 crowd. <clears throat> I am not kidding. So jogging along, I'm like, I really think I'm going to die <clears throat> at this point. And this woman, who was about 60, she saddled up next to me. She's got her Cliff Bar Gatorade sponsorship outfit on. Not breaking a sweat. She's not breathing heavy. She starts talking to me. And I was like, holy cow. And so she's like, I just think it's great that you come, young people are here. You know, we do this full time. We're sponsored. And we're like, she obviously, we stuck out like a sore thumb, right? We're not sponsored. She said, I just think it's great that you're just doing this in your spare time. And so finally I get enough breath to ask her how long she's been doing this. And she kind of rolls her eyes and she's thinking, she says, well, I guess it's been about five years. I started right after I had one of my lungs removed. <laughs> you heard me right. 
I finished the race with a 60-year-old woman who had one lung. <laughs> yeah, my racing career ended that day. I have, I almost just fell over right there, just like, I quit, you know? But she was so sweet to me. She didn't laugh at me and make fun of me. But, um, you know, by, by being a good steward of my body, by looking at diet and exercise and exercising regularly and eating healthy, looking at that as a stewardship issue, it's changed everything for me. It really, really has. It was just a totally different way of looking at things. And, I, and so far, can I just celebrate with you? I have not had any complications from type 1 diabetes so far. And I'm just so thrilled and so thankful. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Um, now, I did have giant babies, um, which was interesting. The first one was 9-1, and this was at 38 weeks. Um, and then I went down to 8-14, and I thought, well, we're heading in the right direction, you know. And then Madison came along, and she was 10-10. Yeah, so I found out I had a C-section like a week before I had her. Um, so anyway, other than that, uh, things have gone really pretty well. And I'm really praying that I have many more years of doing those good works that Ephesians 2.10 talks about. Um, and then I wanted, I wanted to share something else. I was talking to my family pastor, Steve Frizzell. He's so sweet to look at my stuff and make comments. And he said, I would love for you to tell these young men something from me. And I was like, okay, I, I will communicate the message. And um, what he wanted to, to say is kind of hinges on what a verse that I found in Psalms 139.14. Where the psalmist says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God does everything well, including creating you and me. And you are not just beautiful on the inside, ladies. You are beautiful on the outside. Each and every one of you. And if you're like me, I'm the first one to say I'm guilty of, you know, when my husband tells me I'm beautiful in some way. I'm like, you're just saying that because you're married to me. You're just saying that because you have to. And maybe we need to go to our husbands, me included, and just confess and say, you know what, I'm sorry that I have just rejected those times when you've made an attempt to call me beautiful. And my, my pastor, Steve, was saying, you know, eventually guys just get tired and they stop. And I was like, okay, I hear you, bro. You know, maybe we need to go to our husbands and say, you know what, thank you for what you do. And the other thing that struck me was my girls are watching how I receive those comments. And I got thinking, you know, what do I want them to see? I want them to see me receive that and say, thank you. Because um, my husband really, he does think I'm beautiful. And your husband sees that you are beautiful. And so when we receive that well, we're setting such a great example to our kids, to our boys and our girls. Girls, how to receive it. Boys, how to be kind to your wives. So I'll get off my soapbox now for a bit. I think that's true. Each and every one of you is beautiful on the inside and the outside. Let's, let's go to a new perspective on control. So this is an issue that I was pretty sure I didn't struggle with until I had kids. <clears throat> I was pretty resourceful and pretty creative. And, you know, before I had kids, I'd figure out how to work smarter or work harder to make things happen, right? The way I wanted them to. And then my daughter was born. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book called Growing Kids God's Way, but I had decided that was going to be my manual, and I was going to follow it, and she was going to fall into line. Yep. I mean, I had a plan, and I was executing it. Well, to put it mildly, she did not fall into line, okay? In fact, one day, my husband came home to find me on a puddle in the bathroom, waving the white flag of surrender. 
I was not doing well. And that was one of the first of many moments, especially in my first year of being a mom, that God brought me to the end of myself and brought me face to face with control issues that I had. So there's a lot of areas where we want to take charge and control situations or people, right? Here's just a few. See if you can relate to any of these. Parenting, which I mentioned already. Marriage situations, marriage struggles, job difficulties, health challenges, relational difficulties, trying to manage what people think of us. In the age of social media, I think that's a a one that we're really tempted to, to struggle with. And a book that the Lord really used to reveal and help me with the control issues that I had was a book by a psychologist named Larry Crabb. I don't know if you've heard of him. But he wrote a book called The Pressure's Off. And I want to read you a quote from that book. He says, the illusion of control brings requirement. Requirement creates pressure. And pressure leads to slavery. The slavery of having to figure out life to make it work. Those who hold on to the illusion of control lose the enjoyment of freedom. I like that phrase, the illusion of control, because it really gets to the heart of the problem, right? We can't control people. We can't control most situations. And yet we convince ourselves that we actually can. So the first shift in perspective, the first change in perspective, is just to, to acknowledge that any sense of control that I think I may have over people or over situations is just that. It's an illusion. Now, I can remember reading this book at night, laying in my bed. My kids were really little. And it made me really angry. I remember being really angry about this because at the time, I'm thinking about all this in the context of parenting. And I'm like, you mean I take my kids to Awanas, I teach them about Jesus, I share the gospel with them, I take them to church every Sunday, and basically what you're telling me is it really doesn't make any difference. It's not going to affect how, they, you know, I can't guarantee that that's going to make my kids turn out right. It made me really, really angry. Then the Lord... Um, just really showed me two other perspectives in my heart that needed to change. Um, the first one came from Jeremiah 29, 11. I think we have that in the books. I think so, yeah. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. See, me wanting to control everything implied that I thought I knew best. I thought I had plan A. And this verse reminded me, no, you know what? God sees the big picture, and he ultimately knows what is best and what is good. And it's better than anything I could even dream of or imagine. And then he challenged me to start pursuing him over the blessings he could give me or the situation he could resolve or the kids he could make turn out right. Um, I realized that I was desperate to control people and situations because I had started to think that life was found in those things instead of in Jesus. I had started to convince myself that that was where life was instead of in Jesus. So once I saw that God's plan was way better than any that I could dream up, and once I started pursuing him, instead of waiting somebody to, for somebody to change, uh, for a situation to get resolved, I found great peace and rest and freedom like that quote he was talking about, I actually found a lot of freedom. And that was way better. That freedom was so much better than the illusion of control. 
And once I let go of it, like, my heart was firmly at rest. I did have to wrestle with God, but that book really took me through the ringer. But then I was like, okay, I get the title now. I trust in God. I don't have to control my kids because God loves them more than I do. His plan for them are better than any I could dream up. I can influence them in every way. So nothing changed about how I was parenting them. I still took them to Awanas. I still took them to church. I still taught them about Jesus. But the pressure was off to assume the responsibility for making sure they turned out okay. Because God had them. He had me and he had them. He was going to use me in their lives as influence, but not as control. So that was a new perspective that really, really helped me out. So finally, let's, let's look at a new perspective on our faith in the midst of trials. And when Stephanie told me that Yassine was anchored, I just loved that. And I went to Hebrews, your verse, 619. I have it up on a, a, a slide that y'all have seen a few times this morning, but I'd love to read it again. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It anchors the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Um, I found a little section from an article in Christianity Today from a few years back that I'd like to read to you. It says the anchor became a key Christian symbol during the period of Roman persecution. As Michael Card observed in his recent album, Soul Anchor, the first century symbol wasn't the cross. It was the anchor. If I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or crucified and set ablaze as torches at one of Emperor Nero's garden parties, the symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is my anchor. And as these early believers experienced, you don't need an anchor in calm waters, right? In fact, the more stronger the storm is blowing, the more important your anchor is. Some of you may find yourself this morning in really rough seas. I can imagine that in a room this big, some of you are experiencing some of these things. You may be grieving the loss of a family member or a friend. You may be in a very difficult, contentious marriage or divorce. Maybe you're just finding yourself living day to day financially. And the future seems really uncertain when it comes to finances. Maybe your kids have um, rebelled and walked away, either from a relationship with you or a relationship with the Lord. Um, maybe you're caring for aging parents. My mother-in-law is caring for her 96-year-old parents. And they have both um, just taken a turn for the worse at the same time. And she's an only child. And man the past two years have been a huge struggle for them. It's been hard to watch. Maybe you're just in a time of waiting. That can be really, really hard. You're just waiting for something to happen, waiting on the decision. Maybe you're embarking on a new season in life, and the future just seems really unknown. I was talking to Laura earlier before we started that my oldest daughter is a junior. And so... I'm already thinking about what's it going to be like when she goes to college. My three girls love each other. 
I may have already shed many a tear just thinking about them leaving. <laughs> so it's going to be hard. And I'm honestly, I'm scared about that. I'm nervous about that. Maybe it's just the trial of the mundane. Have you ever been in that? Like everything just seems to change. Day in, day out, nothing ever seems to change. At times, it just seems like impossible not to be overwhelmed by that, right? Not to drown in those rescues. So how can a new perspective help us? You know, a lot of times when we talk about a new perspective, we, um, we use the language of um, looking at something, right? We talk about a new perspective, looking at something differently. We talked about that this morning. Maybe the new perspective we need on trials and our faith in time of trials is actually um, literally a different place to fix our eyes. Um, the story of Peter walking on the water is recorded in Matthew 14. I love Peter. He's so spontaneous. Jesus and the disciples have been hanging out doing ministry, and Jesus says, you guys jump in the boat and head over across the lake. Well, it's super stormy, right? Super stormy. The storm, the seas are raging. And Jesus, he just thinks, well, you know, I'll just do this the way that only I can. And he starts walking on the water towards the boat. Well, the disciples are freaked out. They think it's a ghost. They've never seen anybody walk in the water. And so they yell, and, 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 or, and Jesus tells them, he says, don't be afraid. I'm not a ghost. It's Jesus. Well, Peter says, hey, Lord, if it's really you, call me out to walk on the water towards you. I don't know if I would do that. Um, but, but I love Peter. He just jumps right in. So Jesus says, bring it, brother. And so Peter jumps out of the boat. And he's looking at Jesus, and he's walking across the water. He is walking on the water. And then the text says that all of a sudden he saw the wind. I think that's so interesting, right? We can't see the wind, but he sees the effects of the wind. And all of a sudden he's aware of the storms that are raging right around him. And he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he starts looking at the water around him. And what happens? He starts to sink right? He quickly, quickly starts to sink. You know, it's tempting not to fix our eyes on the storm raging around us, right? I mean, I would argue it's almost impossible not to, especially when something first hits you. You just can't help it. <clears throat> but later on in Hebrews, the author reminds us um, where we need to fix our eyes. I love Hebrews 12 where it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If we keep our eyes on him, we can endure any storm. Why? Because he's faithful. He promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. He may not calm the storm. Many of you are, have experienced that, but he can calm our hearts if we allow him to. When I was growing up in Louisville Bible Church, we sang a hymn that many of you will probably recognize. And it was the first thing that popped into my mind when I started working on this talk. And I'd like to read you one of the verses and the chorus from it. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. I wish I could have Laura come up here and sing this. You would all run to the exits. But let me read the verse and the, and the chorus to you. It says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light, so a look at the Savior. And life, more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon him. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious appearance. I find myself singing that to myself a lot. I'm so thankful that in my little grandfather's church that we sang that hymn all the time because today I sing it often when I find myself in the middle of a storm, um, when I feel like I'm going to faint. I fix my eyes on Jesus. I turn my eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth grow strangely dim. And that is true. That's what happens. Well, I pray that the Lord in some way has spoken to your heart this morning. Maybe about some of the different areas that we've talked about, the new perspectives that we've considered. Maybe um, just realizing how you're wired as an introvert or an extrovert has given you some new ideas on how to keep your emotional tank full so that you can stay emotionally healthy. Um, Maybe the area of diet and exercise has just been a consistent and constant struggle. I think if you're a woman and you say you've never struggled with it, I'd like to meet you. I've never met one that hasn't. But looking at taking care of your body as an issue of stewardship, maybe that's like giving you some different motivations and maybe remove some of the negative pressures that we feel so often. Maybe you've run up against something or someone that has revealed some control issues in your life, like having my daughter give from me. Um, Maybe just coming to the realization that control is actually an illusion. It's not real, that we don't really have it, and that God's plan and presence is actually better when the illusion of control has brought you to a place of rest and hopefully of freedom. Maybe the rough seas you've been in has just been overwhelming you and you feel like you might be drowning. But fixing your eyes on Jesus, your solid anchor, is reminding you that you can have calm and peace, whether the storm subsides or not. It has been a joy to be with you this morning. I will continue to pray for you women. I want to pray just um, over you real quick as individuals and as a, a body of believers. Heavenly Father, thank you for each and every woman here this morning. I'm so thankful that you are an intimate, personal God. You know the number of hairs on our head of every single woman in this room. And Lord, you love them. You created them exactly the way you wanted them to be. They are beautiful on the inside and the outside. Thank you for each and every one of them. And I pray for them individually just to have a closer walk with you this year in their spiritual lives. I pray for them corporately as a body of believers that you would bless this church. Be with them through the things that they're going to go through in 2017. May they cling to you, their solid anchor, and not um, to any situation or to any person. Lord, may we hold fast to you and you alone. Thank you for your goodness and kindness and grace and mercy towards me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.